Scripture this morning is from Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. This is God's word. Thank you, Carrie. If you've been coming for a while, you know that um, through the summer into the fall, we looked at the book of Genesis, the book of origins, how the Bible begins, the great themes that are going to play out through the rest of the Bible. And now as uh, we begin the Advent season and we prepare ourselves for Christmas, we approach one of those themes, Um, not just one, but perhaps the central theme, because you can really divide the Bible into three parts. This creation, which is what we looked at in Genesis, the idea that God creates all things, that God created the heavens and the earth, that he created um, the world, created each one of us, everything that we see, created Adam and Eve, created everything good. And then you have the fall, which we looked at, and the consequences of the fall. Adam and Eve disobeying God, seeking what they think God will not give them, and the result of their rebellion, a lie enters into the world. Death enters into the world. A division between the creator and the creature. The creator and the creature, the creation. And the consequences of that tumbling out with Cain and Abel and the first death, and the, the consequences of that death ricocheting down through each generation. So creation, the great high at the beginning of the Bible, and then the full, full of man through rebellion. But then, redemption. God redeeming what had gone bad. God bringing life, a new creation, back in to the old creation filled with death. And that's what Christmas is all about. God redeems the world through his son, Jesus Christ. And perhaps the most succinct summary of how that works is right here from uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church, where he summarizes essentially the whole of God's plan of redemption. This gives you the outlines, the contours, the reasons for why it is the way it is. So let's look at it. Remember, we're setting ourselves up to understand Christmas. We're setting ourselves up to understand who Jesus is and why he had to be born, why he had to come as a child, um, what the Christmas season is all about. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the time had fully come, why did Jesus show up when he showed up? 
You know, the, the Bible does not have a chronology, but it is certainly several millennia, many thousands of years between the fall of Adam and Eve um, and uh, Jesus coming to be born in Palestine under Roman rule. Why did it happen when it happened? Now, of course, it is a set time. This is God's timing. So there are things that we cannot know. And so in a sense, it's speculation. But Christians have always wondered about it. Historians have always wondered about it. And at least some of the reason for when Jesus came is the nature, the, um, the status, the situation in the world when he came. It was unusual. Israel had been established. The people of God had revealed to the world God and his law and the promises of the Messiah. So you had a a setting, a people that could make sense of a Messiah. And this was a time of peace. The Roman Empire, building on Alexander the Great's Greek Empire, reached from India all the way up into northern Europe and into Britain. A huge expanse of land and peoples united, united by a common language. Greek was spoken throughout the empire. Roads were maintained. It was possible to travel. There was at least minimally civilization, the absence of open warfare in most places. And so this was the first time that a large part of the world was actually at peace. One theologian put it this way. In a jungle where cannibals dine on missionary stew, where men prey beastily upon one another, certain preliminary steps towards minimal restraint, hygiene, and the guarantee of continuing survival have to be taken before a prayer meeting can be arranged and the gospel proclaimed. There must be some level of common civility in order for the love of Christ to be demonstrated and good news of his work explained. And this common civility often came through political social order. For the gospel to spread, Paul specifically had to be able to move around. He had to travel, be able to travel. He had to be able to speak a language that was intelligible. He had to be able to go and stand in the middle of crowds of strangers without being subject to violence immediately. And those strangers had to be relaxed enough to stop and listen and hear the gospel. And so in some sense, the Roman Empire was the first time it really could have happened on a large scale. The, the large, large portion of the world could have been addressed in the way that Paul brings the gospel to the Roman Empire. And what is that gospel? When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent his son, born of a woman. Why did Jesus need a human mother? Why did he have to show up as a baby? Couldn't he have shown up as some kind of angelic figure? 
some miraculous child without a belly button you discovered under a bush somewhere? Why did he have to have a human mother? Well, if you read the Gospel of Matthew, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and took from Mary as his wife. But he did not consummate the marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. What was it that God wanted of Mary? He wanted a virgin birth. That is a birth without a human father. Now why is that? Some people read into this story a sort of a fear or a dread of sex. That somehow um, the whole point is that Mary was unsullied by sex and therefore she was without sin and that's for a suitably pure mother uh, for Jesus. But that's not the issue. There's nothing in the Bible to, say, to suggest that sex is a problem or that Mary was different from any other woman. The point is that Jesus has one human mother but two fathers, God and Joseph. And that is what is unique about him. Now, why is that important? Why does he need one human mother and two fathers? Well, first, his mother. The Bible in Genesis says that the root cause of all our problems is sin, that is, living out of accord with God, having a broken relationship. And this is not just uh, um, breaking the law and becoming lawbreakers. But this is fundamental to who we are. It is part of our nature. Because our nature is from God. He was the one that created us and created us pure and perfect. And when you cut yourself off from the source of life, from your creator, what enters into you is death. Death is in our very essence, the very core of who we are. Every human being begins to die as soon as they are born. And every one of us will face it. It is the human dilemma, the human problem. The human nature is broken. And that's our problem. 
So what are we going to do? Where do you find a new human nature? If two human beings with fallen natures come together, you just have more of the same. You need something new, something novel, something pure, something untouched, unsullied. And that's the significance of Mary's virgin birth. There's a story, I've told this several times, but to me it, it kind of captures the essence of this. In the early part of the 19th century, there was a catastrophe that happened in France. There was a great blight spread. It was centered on France, but it, it covered all of Europe. The vines started to die. And they discovered the reason was in the middle of the 19th century is when steamships had started to be fast enough that living aphids from the New World, from America, would survive the journey, and they came to Europe, and they began to destroy the vines. And particularly in France, it was wiped out. The, the industry was absolutely decimated by this. And it was all the Americans' fault, and they knew it. They knew where it came from, and they tried many different things to solve the problem. They burned vineyards. They burned ancient heirloom varieties. Nothing worked. Until two guys said, why don't we fight fire with fire? Why don't we bring vines from America and plant them in Europe? So that's what they tried. They brought vines that had grown in the soil of America that were immune to the aphids, that had been used to the aphids, and they grafted into those roots all the varieties of the European vineyards. It was called the Great Restitution, and it worked. The clean roots, or the roots that were immune to the aphids that they brought from the New World, from America, and they planted in Europe, were immune to the aphids, and they grew. And the varieties they grafted in started to produce the old wines again. And it was a great triumph. New roots solving the problem of death and blight. That is what happens in the virgin birth. Because Jesus' father, biologically, was not Joseph. It was the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And the significance of the virgin birth is just that. That in Jesus, you have two natures put together. A new nature, a reconstituted human nature that has this divine spiritual origin. And so Jesus is the first person since Adam to be born without sin. But there's something else. Notice what it says born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Jesus didn't just have Mary as his biological parent. He also had Joseph as his adopted parent. Joseph did not divorce Mary, and he named Jesus Jesus. We just saw that now. Jesus became Joseph's legal heir, his legal son, his adopted son. 
And therefore, he became part of the covenant people of God, Israel. Legally, he was a citizen through Joseph. And so in Jesus, you get a new nature through Mary and a new legal status through Joseph, the adopted son of a Hebrew male. And that makes him unique. He has a dual nature, divine and human. And he has a dual status, a heavenly father, and he is legally adopted by his human father, Joseph. What does that mean? That means that he becomes one of us and yet remains with one foot in the divine realm. And therefore, Jesus uniquely can make an exchange. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Just as Joseph adopts Jesus into his legal family, when we put our faith in Christ, when we exchange places with him, or he exchanged places with us on the cross, we receive his legal identity, son of God. We are adopted into his family. We become an heir to everything that Jesus has. That can only happen because of Jesus' unique status, divine and human, and his legal status. Legally, under the law, a citizen of Israel, but also a son of God. So this might sound very dry and abstract to you, you know? What's this got to do with Christmas trees and angels and the sweet, sentimental feeling of Christmas? Well, think about what we're doing this morning. It's a lovely, sunny day out there in Hoboken, by the way. Right now, outside, people are going to brunch. They're reading the New York Times. They're playing with their children in the park. They're kicking leaves. They're walking their dogs around. They're enjoying God's glorious creation. Right now, what on earth are we doing in here? This drab, windowless high school gym sitting on beat-up folding chairs. Why would we do that? Are we mad? Are we masochists? Are we some weird cult that hates to have fun? Why are we actually here? This morning, I was out very early, just as the sun was coming out with my dog, and it was beautiful. It was still. The sun was just coming up. There was a big cruise ship that was just coming up the Hudson River. And I stood on the side of the river with my dog, and I just said, thank you. It was so beautiful. There were still stars in the sky as the sun was coming up, turning the sky blue. It was so profoundly still and beautiful, I felt like I was already worshiping. It felt like a worship service. And I prayed, and I gave thanks. 
but there is an amazing fact and truth about Christianity. We don't just look at the beauty of God's good creation anymore. The gospel is that the beauty behind that beauty has come to find us, to have a relationship with us. That the God who said, let there be light, who created the sea and the sky, who placed the moon and the sun in their place in the heavens, that same creator, magnificent and awesome, the one who brings order and beauty to everything, has entered our world through Jesus, in Jesus, and has made himself one of us so that that beauty is not distant anymore. That beauty isn't just some fantasy of beauty, but is now a person that we can know. And that beauty is willing to take our place. More than that, share all that beauty in exchange for all our ugliness. That is why we're here. To worship the one who would do that for us. To celebrate that exchange. To marvel at the gift of Christmas. A child given freely so that we will never ever be outsiders again. So that we become the ultimate insiders. So that we can be sure that we and those that we love will be surrounded by that beauty, be part of that beauty forever. That's why we're in this room. Because the beauty has joined himself to us and is right here with us through his spirit. That's what a worship service is. That's what a church is. That's why we're here. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We call ourselves Christians because we've received his name. We have a new spiritual life because we were given his spirit. A spirit that calls out Abba Father so that we can pray as we did today, Our Father. So that we're no longer slaves bound by the circumstances of the world, but free, children of God. A new family, a new name, a new set of relationships, a new future, a new inheritance. That's why we worship. That's why Christmas is worth getting excited about. That's what the gift means. We are given everything. All we have to do in exchange is say, thank you, Lord. And the gift is given. Let's pray together right now. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of Christmas. We thank you for the freedom to gather in this room and celebrate your beauty. Celebrate what you've brought into the world and into each of our lives. Celebrate what you are doing amongst the people here. Lord, um, as we approach the table this morning, we ask to meet you, 
We ask that you would be present. We ask that as we eat and drink, we would taste and drink in that extraordinary love that you have revealed through Christ. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.